the Almeida Theatre Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another Almeida Podcast. I'm Rupert Gould, I'm the Artistic Director of the Almeida, and I am thrilled to be here with uh, one of the most exciting new voices uh, in world theatre, I'd say. I, I, don't, I can't remember uh, a writer having such an impact in such a short amount of time, uh, really since Sarah Kane, really, if I'm honest, uh, in terms of challenging how we think about theatre and what theatre is. Um, but whereas uh, Sarah was um, a very quiet introvert uh, person in my experience, um, Jeremy is larger than life and a, a fantastic um, advocate for all sorts of things beyond theatre as well. So welcome, Jeremy. Hi. That's really crazy <laughs> to hear. <laughs> it's true. Um, Jeremy's um, first play, I, I don't know whether it's first play chronologically, but certainly his first play on in New York was called Slave Play and it's now a huge sensation on Broadway bringing um, all sorts of amazing new audiences to that strange old place. Um, and his second play, Daddy, which I saw in uh, New York this year, um, we're thrilled to be having at the Almeida in 2020. Um, so welcome, Jeremy. Um, we, this, this is like really a series to talk about what makes an artist an artist. So I just wondered like, whether you could tell us like, how you began. How, like, what, what was theatre for you when you were growing up? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I, this really cool article just came out um, in the New York Times, and I, I guess we're going to be in some odd time machine where, like, I'm going to say this on this podcast as though it's, like, today, and people are going to hear it, and they're going to hear it, like, months from now, maybe. But um, Leslie Morris just wrote an article about uh, this moment that black theater's happening, having in America and its relationship to Tyler Perry, and it's, like, ruffled a lot of feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really relate to that because uh, growing up, I mean, I feel like I became a theater artist partially to spite my family's adoration of Tyler Perry. <laughs> um, and he was like this larger-than-life figure in my household, and he was one of the first major like actual writers of theater I would go see. I would like mm-hmm. see his work in coliseums. Mm-hmm. Like, um, because he would sell out these... In America, there's sort of a history of black um, theatrical performance that happens uh, in small towns uh, outside of the purview of New York called, like, and, and generally for black audiences by black artists, and it's called the Chitlin Circuit. Mm-hmm. It's, like, different than being inside of the literary theater mm-hmm. world. Like, you know, August Wilson is literary theater, and someone like Tyler Perry would be Chitlin Circuit. Tell us about Tyler Perry, for those who don't want to know. Yeah, and so Tyler Perry is, um, he's sort of, he was, a, like a, a, his, his sort of origin story is really wild. He was, like, homeless, mm-hmm. um, and he writes these plays that are um, gospel- inspired and sort of moralistic and generally the lead character is a woman mm-hmm. um, it's a woman in crisis mm-hmm. and in his early plays he was also in them and directed them and produced them mm-hmm. and uh, in the character he would play would be this character named Medea who would be like hello and like had this whole like crazy um, thing and they were all melodramas like they were mm-hmm. all like hardcore melodramas um, and they became movies and now he's I I've been in a different place about Tyler Perry now as an adult, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a place where I realized like, um, a lot of my own fear of even telling people that Tyler Perry was one of my first people that like, uh, I saw, one of the first theatrical um, uh, artists I, was, I witnessed live. Um, part of the reason I didn't want to say that and also like talks, talked down on him in my family a lot was because of class stuff because he's like a working class hero like people love him mm-hmm. but the work isn't high you know mm-hmm. um, but looking looking at the work I love downtown I see all these like things these genre um, conventions that he's breaking mm-hmm. and actively engaging with like um, 
uh, play in a sense that like reminds me of like theater of the ridiculous and mm-hmm. all these other theater artists I like now revere. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm so, 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 what age were you when you first saw that? I was like, I mean, nine, right. you know, nine, eleven. But that was also happening at the same time I was discovering Shakespeare in school. So like, right. I was in Midsummer Night's Dream when I was in fifth grade, I'd and I was like, I really, really liked that, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was really into it. So I got really into Shakespeare because I was a pretentious child. I was uh-huh. a only child of, or not the only child, but um, I, I had a single mother. Mm-hmm. And my, when my parents got a divorce, I lived with my mom. My sister lived with our dad. Right. So um, I was with my mom for most of my childhood. And um, I... And what was your mother by profession? Well, my mom uh, was a hairstylist. Mm-hmm. She, like, like did hair. Mm-hmm. And she uh, would let me... She got told when I was, like, really young that, like, the best thing to do with a gifted child was to, like, let him... Let his mind go wherever it wanted. Like, mm-hmm. don't say no to him. Mm-hmm. Like, which was probably why um, I'm such a brat. But um, but uh, not saying no to me meant that like when I would go to the bookstore and want to get a book that was like outside of my reading limit, like all the complete works of William Shakespeare, she'd be like, "Well, you say you want it. Here you go." You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would read that, and I saw um, a Tennessee Williams play when I was in. Uh, uh, eighth grade, which mm-hmm. is when you're like 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a production of Streetcar Named Desire that came from New York to Greensboro. Mm-hmm. And that blew my mind away. I was mm-hmm. like, what? And there was like, I'll never forget the like, the penultimate scene took place in like um, a room behind the set that had a mirror above it, mm-hmm. which, you know, actually is interesting thinking about slave play now. Mm-hmm. And like, so you could watch all the action in that really fucked up scene in that mirror, but mm-hmm. like, it was like obscured enough that you're like, what's happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my, and, I, and I was an actor. Uh-huh. So yeah, so in, I got cast in a, in a musical um, in eighth grade, and it's one of the only musicals I did really successfully. I was in My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. and um, I, a person from like the really expensive private school, um, Candace, mm-hmm. saw me, and she was like, "You're really special. I teach drama, dance, and English at um, the private school. Mm-hmm. Would you be interesting interested in coming? Mm-hmm. Because like essentially the reason was that there were no black kids in the drama program, mm-hmm. and she was like, "I think you're you're special. You should come." So I did. And what was that experience like? It was. Amazing, because I got to work with this like really cool and excited woman who um, who I had also sought out because I I went and saw their all white production of Aida, and I was like <laughs> I need to go to this school because like, it, was, like, it was, like, blew my mind away. But um, she had like an actual interest in experimental theater and like and loved that I love to read and engage with. Um, drama as a liter- from as a literary tradition. Mm-hmm. So she like gave me she gave me a huge thing of plays. She's like read every play in this book, and I did. It was like a weird dare. I mm-hmm. think maybe to get me out of her office, mm-hmm. and then I did it. And um, after that, I kind of became her like associate artistic director of like the the Carlisle School players. Wow. So she consult with me about what shows that we would do next season, mm-hmm. and generally position me to have like a really great lead or mm-hmm. like a really great supporting lead, so mm-hmm. that like people wouldn't catch on that I was getting all the best roles. Wow. And then um, when I wanted to do, when I wanted to start directing, Mm -hmm. she let me have, there there was like a trailer behind the school. Mm -hmm. She's like, that can be your black box. And so like, 
I got to like do like multiple productions in this black box. And, and this is still when you were a teenager? It was when I was a teenager. Wow. And at the time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, this is just like a fun thing to do in mm-hmm. school because like... I'm, and, and were you a smart kid at school? Were you yeah, I was, I was smart, but I was restless. Uh-huh. So it was like I needed to be doing like five extra things. And yeah. um, the only thing that brought me joy in high school, like mm-hmm. true unadulterated joy, was working with Candace in drama and dance. And how did that feel sort of emotionally kind of working in a in a private school space with that sort of ethos or background did you feel like you were an entryist at some level i mean did you feel politicized at all by, by that experience or i i think because i'd always felt politicized i mean i'd always been to different private schools until mm-hmm. the divorce where i went to like the public school for two years mm-hmm. um but i'd always felt politicized because i think it's impossible not to feel politicized when you're in a place like virginia like mm-hmm. virginia is like the it was like the capital of the confederacy was in virginia you know yeah. so like my blackness felt charged a lot mm-hmm. and also i was we were always uh, poor, poorer than any other people I went to schools with. Mm-hmm. Um, because th- even when I was in the public school, they put me in the gifted and talented program, mm-hmm. which is uh, basically just like another way of like um, separating kids by class. Because like the only kids that are generally in those are all the white kids and the rich kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't. I don't think I, I've actually felt liberated being there because mm-hmm. I felt in that space, being as smart as I was. And the only one meant that I was pr- I was a protected class in this mm-hmm. really intense way. Yeah. And like you know, looking back on it now, I now recognize all of the other factors that went into that protection that also made that protection sort of an oppression. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was I don't know that I would have gained as much confidence as I had mm-hmm. um, had I not been in a place like that where I could sort of be the big man on campus. And, and were you writing as well? Um, literate. I was like so I was really into poetry and mm-hmm. um in. High school, uh, I was I, I sort of like fancy myself as like you know like I was gonna be a lawyer, poet, like maybe <laughs> write a novel, um, and so I didn't write plays. I didn't. I, I think I actually thought that playwriting was like this mythical thing that was like so crazy, mm-hmm. and I didn't write a play until my first year of drama school, which I. I went to because I got into a really hard drama school to get into. Where, where was that? Um, the theater school at DePaul. It's mm-hmm. like where mm-hmm. it's where Gillian Anderson went, which is like, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I want to go someplace where a real actor's gone. And that, at that point, you were going to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. good, good. Um, because I think I basically um, the I got into some really good like straight colleges, mm-hmm. and um, I just like sort of auditioned for these other schools like secretly, and mm-hmm. I was like, if because basically I was so. Uh, I was so competitive with my both myself and my community that I was like, I can't be embarrassed if like me being the good actor in Virginia means I'm just good in Virginia. Like, <laughs> I I want to get I'll try to get into the hardest schools to get into, yeah. and if I get in, that means I might have a chance to be a real actor. You right. know, yeah, yeah. Because um, I didn't want to do I didn't want to be an artist, quote unquote, unless I knew that I would be able to like pay my mom back in some weird way yeah. for like all the sacrifices she made and like the easiest way to do that would be to be a lawyer yeah. so I was like you're going to try this out until you're 30 and if you don't figure it out by the time you're 30 you have to go to school to be a lawyer Yeah. so then you left at drama school what age? I went to drama school at 18 so you were done by 21, 22? no I got cut oh really? yeah it's like, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, so I went to a school that had 52 people mm. accepted and only 26 would get to stay at the end of the year. Oh, nice. So for me, like, going to that school meant that, like, if I didn't, if I didn't get, if, it was going to be a real, a, a really good litmus test of whether or not I could actually, like, make it as an artist. Because mm. if I got cut at the end of the school year, that meant I was a bad artist. Mm-hmm. But after a year of being there and watching 
all of the people around me and realizing that some people that I really, really love, mm-hmm. who were, I thought their talent was undeniable. Like there's this girl named Sophie who I will never forget. Mm-hmm. She was like one of the only first years picked to be in like an onstage like production. Mm-hmm. And she was in, she had like a basically silent role in The Giver, mm-hmm. you know that Lois Lowry book? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it took all of our breaths away, like the like her detail, mm-hmm. and I and I was remember thinking like Sophie's a real actress, like that's real art, and she got cut, wow. and she got cut because she was one of those girls that was like six foot and like right. not not thin and not big. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of she was like just like a a woman, mm-hmm. and in an eighteen year old girl's body, and I don't think people she wasn't an ingenue. She like yeah. I mean she's my ingenue. She'd be an ingenue in like my Romeo and Juliet in a second. But mm-hmm. I think in their mind they were like. Right. And I saw the girls they kept, and then mm-hmm. I saw the boys they kept, and I was just like, oh, this is a scam. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I was like, this isn't actually about like. Who so how did you deal with that? But point having been really successful as a kid and gifted and oh, because like, I guess a lot of people listening will have setbacks around that point in their career. What, what, what did you learn from that, and how did you overcome that? Well, I think that like I be again like part of the gift and the curse of going to a school where I got to be the big man on campus mm-hmm. was that it gave me like a false air of like. Uh, utter confidence like that I could do it made me feel like I was like uh, that the school I went to the kind of school I went to was the kind of school that you go to to be to be told like you are a white man who has the king to the cap of uh, the keys to the castle mm-hmm. like that's what you learn there and mm-hmm. so I walked with that even though I fully I was like fully a gay black mm-hmm. like person mm-hmm. and like I felt like what what was really helpful about having the sort of like dumb confidence that like a lot of my class like, like most people from my class are like working government now mm-hmm. like run huge businesses like it's crazy mm-hmm. and I think learning to walk like those boys mm-hmm. made it so that when I got told I wasn't good enough mm-hmm. I was like I will prove to you that I am mm-hmm. and I and all my friends from that time will tell you I had a full mental breakdown like you know but like I think that like the way I dealt with it was like in all the unhealthy ways but I think that sometimes it's, I, I think it's really good and freeing to admit that this in, what we've decided to do is unhealthy. Like, mm-hmm. you live on the brink of, like, insanity all the time doing this. Mm-hmm. So I think I had to. Like, I, I remember there was, like, for a year, I was, like, a full hoarder of, like, newspapers mm-hmm. and just the theater section. And I would put the theater section up on my wall and just look at, like, every review that was written about every play, every decision that every theater person was making and I made wallpaper out of it mm-hmm. and but I learned everything that was happening in New York and Chicago in the theater right from those papers and it was truly a moment when I was psycho right <laughs> but um so but, what was the gap between that and Yale then was that it was a, it was a 10 year gap and what, what were you doing through that, those 10 years so the first so I was in Chicago and I that one of my teachers I called one of my teachers and I got cut and I said why did you cut me she's like because you won't be castable to your 26 at least mm-hmm. and I immediately got cast in American Buffalo uh-huh. in Chicago and what ended up happening was that for two years I was one of the most castable actors in Chicago because I was actually 18 right. so all the other actors were like were coming out and they were like 23 mm-hmm. and they looked 23 and I was like the actual 18 year old who also knew every play that the theater had done for the last five years mm-hmm. so when I go into the casting director I was like oh my god like why did you cast like this person in like that weird production of Duchess of Malfi and they're like you know about that and I'm like yeah like I read it you know <laughs> and so like my charm sort of like helped me move in a different way than a lot of other actors did um, and also my charm and my like relationship to like the history that these theaters and were you carried. being cast 
else to type in that period? Or one hundred percent. Like any crazy person <laughs> in like a play by like a white experimental theater artist, mm-hmm. I was like in. <laughs> um, and like I was damaged boys. Right. Like any damaged boy, yeah. they were like you. And you were learning about writing during that period. Do you think? Or? Well, I, so I wrote a play in college. I forgot to mention that. Uh-huh. I wrote. I wrote a play called. Um, uh, the Tenth or Clover Streets Boys, which was about like these group of sex workers who had Ten Commandments, but they never finished writing the tenth one. Um, which is sort of like it was like a weird Susan Lori Parks ripoff, like you know. <laughs> um, but I did a monologue from it, or I did a scene from it in class because they had told me to look up a scene mm-hmm. for um, for my type, and I couldn't find my type, mm-hmm. so I made a character that was like a black gay like cinephile mm-hmm. um, who like was being like wooed into this world of sex work mm-hmm. and. And like was like unsure of it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, all these were like this scene is so good. What mm-hmm. play is this from? We've never read a scene that has like this such immediacy and raw. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to do like I wanted to do the kind of thing that like I was like I was an experimental theater nerd, mm-hmm. but I was also like a sort of like Evo Van Hova like sort of like raw mm-hmm. like Euro mm-hmm. like nice yeah. yeah. And I just yeah. wanted to be able to be like. I wanted to be like a female actress in like, a, in like an Evo Van Hova play or something. Um, and um, they were like, where is this from? And I was like, oh, I wrote it. And my teachers got so incensed. They were like, that wasn't the assignment. And really? I was like, yeah, it was like a huge thing. And I was like, oh, that was like what? That was all, this is all I could, But anyway, it was like a whole thing. So I had written that play in, in, and, I, and it got published in the college um, literary magazine. And I also, once I got cut, I got um, accepted into the... English department mm-hmm. but um, I was getting so much work as an actor that I was like I don't really care about writing like I'm going to be an actor <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I got this fancy agent and then a person I was in a play with got cast as a lead in a pilot in LA mm-hmm. and I was like I should go to LA so then I went to LA like bright eyed bushy tail at 21 years old with like $1,000 in my bank account um, like couch surf, met someone at a party, like my second day there who like invited me to live with him until I figured out where I was going to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, him and his girlfriend, it wasn't like a, like it wasn't a daddy situation. <laughs> um, and then, uh, I was going to all these auditions and I woke up one day after the seventh thing that was the worst thing I'd ever read and realized I didn't want to be a actor. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, or at least not an actor that had to audition for bad things mm-hmm. and like depend on that being how they would like, you know, get their supper. Mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to have a new identity, and mm-hmm. that new identity would be at uh, I would be a playwright who had graduated from DePaul, mm-hmm. and like that was who I was. And it just happened one day because I was at a party, and someone was like, "What do you do?" And I was like, mm-hmm. "I write plays." Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oh, I, they're like, where did you learn how to write a play?" And, I, and like in LA, I was like, "Oh, I learned in Chicago at the school." And then all of a sudden, my identity was that I had graduated from school and write plays. And so, tell me about Yale. So, I mean, that was further down, but I mean, Yale is that, that playwright program is obviously hugely influential now, I feel, yeah. and, and we don't really have anything like that in England. D- t- tell us, like, what, how did you apply for that? What's the structure there? Who runs it? Yeah, so for, uh, so I was in LA for six years, mm. and in that time, I sort of, like, slowly, like, tiptoed towards writing, and I wrote at the very end of my six years there, I wrote one play, and it was a play, I had come up with lots of ideas for plays, but I never like finished writing a play. And I had also assisted a lot of screenwriters mm-hmm. up until then. And um, so I was like, I, I feel like I did six years as an apprentice. And then um, my, I got in, I got, my play got accepted to this weird festival. It's, 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 I got to yell in a roundabout way, so I had to tell you in a roundabout way. But I, I got accepted to this festival that was the Samuel French Festival. It was like a huge drama book publisher in America. Mm. 
And um, they only accept 30 plays out of like 1,300 submissions. And my play got picked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. And so I spent every dime I had uh, like to get to New York and then asked my mom if she would put something up in her salon. And so all these ladies from her salon like chipped in like a dollar, two dollars so I could like afford rehearsal mm-hmm. um, stuff. And I was like, I can't lose this festival because you would get an agent. Mm-hmm. And I did the festival and I lost. I, like, again, it's like the story of Jeremy's life is like literally he like gets close to the thing and then he loses, which is like ridiculous because now I'm in London and I have a play on Broadway, but whatever. Um, it's like, you don't lose that hard. Um, but no, but it was like, at the time it felt like I was never going to get a break. And um, I was crying outside and I called my mentor, Christopher Shin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was like, you were there, Chris. And he was like, I was. He was like, and you wrote something honest. And honesty doesn't get rewarded all the time. And he's like, you had to like know that. He's like, but you need to keep writing. You shouldn't go back to LA. I was like, well, where am I going to write? I don't have time to write. Like I have to work three jobs. And he's like, good a residency somewhere and I was like can you send me a list like I don't know anything I'm an idiot and he's like listen here here's a list of residencies and um he's like the only one that doesn't have an application fee is this one it's called the McDowell colony but like don't put your hopes on that one because like most people don't get in like it's like a hard one to get into and I was like well that's the only one that's free so that's one I'm applying to so I applied I got waitlisted mm-hmm. I called them every day once I found out I was waitlisted and was like, I, would, I will sleep for a day. I will sleep for, you know, a second. Just like, let me come there. Let me be a part of that. And they gave me two months there um, at the, after a month of calling them. Um, <laughs> and um, when I went, that's where I became an artist. Like I, became, I, I, I got to sit at tables with people who like had MacArthur's and Pulitzer's and like Grammys. And I was this person who had written a 45 page play mm-hmm. that had been at a festival and not done anything more than that. And I had imposter syndrome the first week. And then at one point I was sitting at a table with someone and they asked me a question and I answered it. And they were like, oh, that's so genius. And then like, they kept leaning in. And I turned to this older, this older woman there who I really, really grew, like, love and she's one of my really close friends. And I was like, it's so crazy. Everyone's leaning in like I matter. She's like, you do matter. You're sitting at the same table. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah. And then something clicked and I like, became that same like, prep school boy that I was before who was like, mm-hmm. I have the confidence to like, take over the world. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wrote Daddy. I wrote Daddy there. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the first, I had written the first two acts and Amy Herzog was there. Mm-hmm. And Amy heard those acts and she was like, Jeremy, you need to keep writing plays. Like, I don't know what you need mm-hmm. to do, but you need to do. I was like, well, if I could keep going to residency, that would be amazing. I've written more here than I've ever written. She's yeah. like, we know what a long residency is? Grad school, you should go to Yale. So, so, so give us just one more, give us a little teaser about what Daddy is then. Yeah, so Daddy was a play that was me processing what my time in LA, the sort of listlessness in LA, how, how that it felt, and like what, um, I, I wanted to dramatize my own self-actualization that like I could be an artist and I needed to get out of that space um, to do that. So it's about uh, an intergenerational, interracial relationship between like a man, a white man of a certain age um, who's an art collector and a very wealthy one. And, uh, um, and Franklin, who's the main character, who is his uh, 26-year-old black gay lover um, who starts living with him after they meet at a party. And the entire play takes place around a pool. Um, and I wanted to set, I wanted to do a play that felt undeniable. Because I felt like this was my only shot. I was like going there, mm-hmm. I had two months to write something. And I was like, let me write something that's going to be so good that people can't deny it. And I, I took every bit of knowledge of the theater I had. And I was like, what would make this 
pop. And I also went with this ethos of writing a play that my mom would like. Because my mom hadn't liked a lot of the little things I'd be writing mm-hmm. on, in my six years in LA. And I was like, I want to write something that my mom would like. That means writing something that might be more populist. Um, I was like, so what if I worked in the form of melodrama, like 19th century melodrama? So I made this 19th century melodrama. And there was like two huge dramaturgs at the retreat with us. And they were just like, this is beautifully and impeccably structured. Like, how did you do this? And I was like, oh, I just read a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so Amy told me to apply to Yale. I was like, there's no way I'll get in. Like, I didn't even finish undergrad. Mm. And she was like, actually, at Yale, in the playwriting and acting programs, if you have talent, you can get in, whether you are in, like, whether you've graduated or not. So I decided that I was going to apply to Yale, but moreover, I was going to just, either way, I was going to leave L.A. So I applied to Yale, um, the two writing fellowships in New York, um, I did a blind script submission to the Royal Court. Still haven't heard back. <laughs> um, and I did a um, uh, a blind, oh, I did a, um, what do you call it? I applied to Juilliard as well, because mm. Juilliard also lets you go for this fellowship. And um, I got in to Yale, and um, oh, the blind script I sent to Playwrights Horizons got me a commission. Mm-hmm. Which is really crazy, and like immediately in like six months, this weird play I've written there like sort of like opened all these doors for me. And Yale, I mean, I had to go there because at the time when I applied, um, Jeannie O'Hare was running the program. Mm-hmm. Jeannie O'Hare, for those who don't know, was like a very um, she's a wildly influential dramaturg, and like um, she's run theaters yeah. too. She was at the RSC, yeah. Yeah, she was at the RSC, and she's at the Public now. Um, but she, the way she talked about theater, the way she talked about my writing, um, sort of exploded my, ex- just exploded my brain. And I was like, I have to be there. I was like, I have to go to the school so I can learn something about where I'm going to go. And I, I went to Yale hoping it was going to be a great books program mm-hmm. in a sense, like where the thing that I loved doing since I was with my drama teacher growing up were just reading plays and like. Mm-hmm stumbling into forms based on like my reading of those plays would be what I would get at Yale and it wasn't exactly that (laughs) what was it um different (laughs) I mean I think that the thing that's interesting is that Yale Yale is a school it's a vocational school you know it's not a school for necessarily for artistry or even like deep inquiry inside of the form. It's not like they're like, like, let's come here and you'll be in a three-year lab on like what your contribution to the art form is going to be. It's like, mm-hmm. let's be in a three-year boot camp on how to do this job and do it in a regional theater. Like they call the theater, the Yale Repertory Theater, a like... Um, of a uh, like the the like the hospital you know what a training hospital what do you call those things yeah, yeah when yeah. doctors do, and I'm like well I don't know that I want to like train on how to like be a playwright in a regional theater you know what I mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and of course obviously I mean I have a play on Broadway right now and even though people are like it's so weird and it's so different like I still think it's probably there because I learned how to function inside of an institution, you mm-hmm. know, in a different way than I might have had I gone to Brooklyn College yeah. and, like, just learned how to make cool plays yeah. um, that were, like, breaking the form and doing all this and, and, and by this point, then, when you were, you know, uh, an artist and a, and a playwright in your, in your head as well as in your practice, who, who were the, 
Who were like the big influences? I don't just mean by playwrights. I know you talk about people like yeah. Rihanna as well, yeah. and yeah. Ionesco or whatever. But like, who 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 are your central like go to yeah. inspiration points? I love that you mentioned Ionesco because I've been forgetting to mention him recently, mm-hmm. and I love Ionesco so much. I think like on a like dramatic literature front, like it was Adrian Kennedy and um, Adrian Kennedy and uh, Edward Albee were two of my like great. Um, they they were just my greats. Um, as was Carol Churchill. Uh, Sarah Kane, who I, I mean, to hear you say that just like blew my brain away because I, I do think that the moment we're in now, I feel like there's a good chance that Sarah Kane's blast it would have gone to like the West End had mm-hmm. it like come out now, mm-hmm. um, which is the one thing that gives me hope that like I'm not some weird sellout playwright that like <laughs> ha- like hopes to be interesting and actually is just sort of deeply bland. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, and like, and then you know, there was like, you know, the Debbie Tucker Green. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I love people who had like formal experimentation at like the back, but also just like deep poetry mm-hmm. inside of their spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was like, but I was also a fan of like Ralph Lemon and the work of Sarah Sarah Mitchelson mm-hmm. and these like amazing choreographers because I, I had a dance background, so I like mm-hmm. really loved dance. I loved the Wooster Group. Like, mm-hmm. if I could be like someone who deconstructed like the Wooster group and just got to work with like 10 people, I would, uh, it would be heaven. Mm-hmm. Same with ERS, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why, like it's so funny whenever people are like, it's so crazy. Like Annie McNamara is making a Broadway debut with some young playwright named Jeremy Harris. And like the reason Annie McNamara had to be in Slave Play was because Annie McNamara was in one of the greatest productions of a play of all time. Yeah. And like she's like the height of actress to me, you know? So it's like, for me, I like for me, the height of like, um, like there's a there's a really annoying critic named Terry Teachout in America, who has a podcast. And on his podcast, he was just talking about me last night, which is one of the things I did instead of writing for an hour, <laughs> was listening to his dumb podcast. And he was like, he's like, I just worry about someone like Jeremy. It's like you know, it's the Ralph Ellison thing. He wrote he wrote Invisible Man first, and then he chased that his entire career. He was like, when you're a playwright like Jeremy, and you hit the mark on your first go around, and you're as young as he is, like, is there is there any hope for him? Like, will he ever? And I was like, whoever said that Broadway was my mark? Like, that's not my bullseye. Like, my bullseye was actually somehow being one of those weird theater companies that gets to travel the world and, like, make cool things with your friends for 12 years. Um, and that, th- so those are my inspirations yeah. when I came to drama school. And the first thing I asked everyone when I got there, I was like, so, I was like, oh, so I don't care about, like, having a play go up at the public mm-hmm. or, like, any of these theaters. I was given that up being a thing for me. I was like, how do I have a play go to Europe and how do I make my own theater company? (laughs) Then they were like, "Uh, we'll get to that third year. Um, (laughs) And so for two years, I spent like teaching myself how to do those things and spending most of my time with the Yale School of Art people and the people in the Yale School of Architecture. Let's let's take a moment just to talk about Slave Play. Obviously, it's a slave on Broadway. Uh, I read it. (laughs) You read the first 40 pages of Slave Play and you... Your head blows off. Uh, t- tell us, tell us what it is and what you're trying to do with that. Yeah, Slave Play was the play that I came to school knowing I wanted to write next. And like, in a way, it's funny because I wrote Daddy, mm-hmm. and then I had this idea for Slave Play. Um, and the first project I had to do at Yale was a project that was a short play. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a short play called Water Sports or Insignificant White Boys that I'm actually in. Um, that like imagines a brunch between um, 
uh, James Baldwin and Robert Maplethorpe and that they're like imagined boyfriends. And this is weird thing. And then the la- the next play that I wrote after that, starting in my first year at Yale, was Slave Play. And after I completed Slave Play, I felt like this breath of fresh Because, like, you know, all those plays are about kink. Mm-hmm. Um, all those plays are about, like, entanglement, white and black entanglement. And at the end of Slave Play, I was like, oh, I want to write this other play that's about this now. Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with any of those things. And before these three ideas were coming, really, these ideas for these plays came out so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I realized after I finished Slave Play, I was like, oh, this is a question you started with daddy and you're finishing with mm-hmm. Slave Play, or at least for yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about the way this, that question um, uh, the fi- the finishing that f- answering it for myself meant like opening opening myself up to like a litany of way more questions you know mm-hmm. um, but I think that like uh, slave play was a play that I was working with of time in a different way than I'd ever worked with like mm-hmm. I wanted to work with like something like an Annie Bakerish relationship to like realism <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I also knew that my realism would probably be like infected by like Thomas Bradshaw and you know uh, Bruce LaBruce mm-hmm. and all of these really interesting people who like make art that intersects with porn in ways that I find interesting because mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that I was really interested in, especially as I started writing, was like, how do I get my friends to the theater? Mm-hmm. Like, my friends who don't do theater. And I was like, what things do they like? I was like, they like pop music, they like porn, and like, that's the one thing they all have in common, you know? <laughs> and I was like, so how can I have plays that like uh, engage both of those things? I think I also was so tired of going to the, pl- to the theater and seeing everyone enter more alive than they left. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like I would see these plays where people would, like, leave having not felt much of anything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, even if I just make people turned on for 30 minutes and, like, freaked out that they're turned on, then, like, I've done something to them. Like, they can't just, like, dismiss that away. They won't leave dead if they've, <laughs> if they've like, hit, like, some space of the erotic and some space of the grotesque at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that was what I wanted to do with Slave Play. And tell us about that, uh, uh, the thing you did on Broadway, Blackout, was it? The, yeah. yeah. I was interested about that and also your relationship to audiences and, and what you feel about who's coming to theatre and, and how to make it more inclusive. And Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, I, I think a lot about how, like, I was in L.A. for a long time and I had a bunch of people around me who were the best artists I knew and they would go see... Uh, they would go see classical music that some we have friends who were classical music composers. We have friends who like were like major studio artists who would do visual art, installation, all these other things. Everyone wanted to support everyone's art, but the minute I told everyone I was a theater artist, they were like, "Oh God, I hate the play. I hate plays. They're the worst." And um, I, I, I've, I've, I've always been like, how can I make that not what people think theater is? Like theater is cool. It's fucking cool. Like it's like you can't. You can't, I mean, it's not, <laughs> but it also is when it's really good, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, I wanted to make space for more young people and more people that look like me to want to go to the theater because I saw it being hijacked, this thing I loved, by, like, old, the oldest, richest, whitest people. And I was like, I, again, like, I learned how to be a boy who can, like, open the keys to the castle. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I can open the keys to the castle, not just for, like, other people who have keys to the castle, but for, like, all the people in the fiefdoms outside, mm-hmm. then, like, let's do it, you know? So I've been, I've been very interested in how I can kick the doors of these things open mm-hmm. and, like, invite more people in. Because I think that if people saw the right things first 
it would change how everyone's relationship to the theater was. And it would make going to the theater more fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to just go to the theater every time and feel under a microscope of, like, the seven people around me who are like, what is he doing here? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't look like anyone else here. And I'm not even saying they're doing it in a way that's like actually nefarious or mean and like not to disparage them. I don't know why they're looking at me, but I think they're looking at me the same reason I'm looking at them, which is that like, it's, not, it's an odd thing to see me in the theater. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, so I wanted to see more of me in the theater. So when I, when I found out my play was happening off-Broadway, I decided to figure out like how theaters worked in general. So I sat in the executive director's office and just asked him questions all the time. And then I would tweet about my what he told me. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, like, I was like, a big reason why people don't like theater is that like, they don't really understand like, how the pricing works or why things are so expensive, mm-hmm. and, um, especially in America. So I started telling people. And then I, I did this thing back then it, it, when it was off Broadway where I was like, here's a list of all the ways I scam theaters to get in for free in the seven years before I had to play off Broadway. Mm-hmm. I was like, I would... Like go to the box office and say like, oh, I know this person on your board. Like they left a ticket for me, and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, like this person who runs your board left a ticket for me, and then they'd freak out and just give me a ticket. Or um, I would text a rich friend and say like, hey, have you heard about this show at the Almeida? It's called Vasa. And then I'd send them like a article about it. Like, oh wow, it looks so cool. I'm like, yeah, we should totally go. And then you sort of like keep talking about it enough that they just buy two tickets and then you never pay them back for the other ticket. <laughs> and, so, and so I tweeted that one and I tweeted like six other things. But the one about the rich friends made my friend um, uh, Maxwell uh, decide to buy to do that. He's like, I want to be someone's rich friend. Uh, he was like, what if I bought like 30 tickets and you just gave them to people? So doing that got started getting a lot of students and young people to come see my play. And it grew and grew and grew. And when we did Daddy, we did a lot of things like that. And when I knew my play was going to Broadway, I spoke to my friend Kalela, who's a really amazing singer. And she was like, Jeremy, I saw that play. and It was so amazing. But the only thing I wish is, if, is, is that there had been a night where only black people could see the play. And I was like, well, why can't there be? And she's like, well, and I was like, oh, I'll do it. Next time the play happens, I'll do it. And she's like, great. Now, I said that not knowing the next time it was going to happen was at, um, on Broadway. <laughs> Um, so that was crazy. Um, but you know, uh, it was, it was really exciting when I was told the play was going to Broadway. The one of the first thing I was like, Oh, we have, we have to have a night just for black people. And everyone was like, wait, what? And I was like, sorry, my friend Kalela said this thing. We had to have a night just for black people. I think it'll be really great because also one of the main criticisms of my play is that like, it wasn't written for black people. So therefore, uh, like it's somehow invalid, which isn't true. I was like, I actually think my play would work for an all-black audience in a way that certain other plays wouldn't. And um, they were like, okay, like let's try it out. Because I, I, in in a rare instance, I'm I've been blessed with producers who listen to artists, which is really really cool. Um, I feel like I have that same gift here at the Almeida. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so they tried. To, they, we did this weird experiment, and it went gangbusters. And how did it feel? How did the play? Did, what was the experience like being in the audience? It was oh god, this is coming full circle. Mm. It literally felt like being at a Tyler Perry play. <laughs> like not kidding, because uh, there was a. There was an, ab- a, an abandon mm-hmm. to the laughter in the room that night. Um, because the thing that's hard about Slave Play is that it is a really funny play. Mm-hmm. But it's a hard play in a mixed audience to know how to laugh and when to laugh, which is a part of the dramaturgy of it, right? Sure, like, sure. And it's part of the excitement of watching that play, mm-hmm. for me at mm-hmm. least. I, I, I think we're in a moment where people feel that discomfort might be, um, might, might necessitate uh, 
um, avoidance of a thing. And actually, like, discomfort is, like, how I walk through the world. So I, I like to lean into it. And I think that when a play has, like, sort of, like, a simmering discomfort, that means you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you watch someone, like, shift in their seat and look at you and then, like, s- sort of laugh and then, like, feel bad, like, I'm like, this is exactly what a play should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, in this play, A Strange Loop, which is a musical I saw, there's this really amazing song called AIDS is God's Punishment. And the song is delivered. It's like one of the penultimate songs of the play. And it's like this huge number. It's like huger than life. And like this like super charismatic uh, performer named Larry Owens sings it. He's like, AIDS is God's punishment. It's like this amazing gospel song. <laughs> and like he's like, come on, y'all clap. And everyone starts clapping. Like they're just like, like AIDS is God's And then the, and like people slowly realize what they're saying. And they're like, oh my God. And like watching them like come, like move from the joys of that that song and like the performance of being in a black gospel church to realizing that this is someone actually processing the fact that like um, his parents told him that he would literally get AIDS and die if he was a homosexual mm-hmm. and it all started in the church and like this is his like the nucleus of his psychic trauma was it was that was I was like I'm watching theater mm-hmm. do the thing it's supposed to do um, so but that night watching it in an all black night I saw theater do another thing I, I didn't know it could do which is uh, I knew it could do, but I hadn't seen it do in a place like that. Was like give people a chance to like breathe through trauma, laugh through trauma in a really free way, and not sit discomfited by their own trauma, you know, mm-hmm. or the like processing of it, you know. Right. Um, which was really cool. Great. Well, breathing through trauma is a great uh, tagline for theatre, I guess. And. Um, Everyone must come and see Daddy, and maybe they'll see Jeremy in the foyer. <laughs> um, I want to more of his wisdom. Um, uh, it's terrific to talk to you, and hopefully, I'm we do such it again. a rambler today. No, so. it's great, fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Almeida Theatre podcast. For more, head to almeida.co.uk/explore.